0: When you visit
1: Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about Hillary with Tom Frank. He says her long-standing involvement with microfinance is the wrong way to help poor women around the world. Also we'll look at independent voters. Both Bernie and Donald Trump have recruited lots of them, but are independents really the key to winning the presidency this year? Joshua Holland has some facts. He says no. For months we've been watching the polls showing that many Bernie Sanders supporters say they won't vote for Hillary in November. And now we have news that some Bernie Sanders supporters are planning to demonstrate outside the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia in July. The city of Philadelphia just granted permits for four days of all-day rallies, including one right outside the convention hall where at least 30,000 Bernie supporters are expected. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Should add that the organizers of this uh, demonstration are not officially associated with Bernie's campaign. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of The American Prospect, and he also writes for the L.A. Times, The Guardian, and other publications. Harold,
0: welcome back. Always good to be here, John
2: the Wall Street Journal is not the best source of news about Bernie supporters, but I, I think it's true that if Bernie called on his supporters to demonstrate in Philly, he would certainly be able to get 30,000. And Uh, You probably remember that the 30,000 is more people than were in the streets in Chicago in 1968 outside the Democratic National Convention. That that was the party disaster after which uh, Nixon was narrowly elected. What do you make of this news?
0: I, I really think all balls are in the air at the moment. By the time of the convention, there may be some kind of understanding already reached between Bernie uh, and the Bernie camp and the Hillary camp. So it, it really remains to be seen. And I should add that the appointments made yesterday to the uh, platform drafting committee certainly were a major nod in Bernie's direction. He got five appointments, Hillary got six, and the Democratic National Committee chairperson, Deputy Wasserman Schultz, made four but even her appointments really, in many ways, lean to the left. I mean, she appointed Barbara Lee, who represents Oakland and Berkeley, uh, in the House, who is probably one of the two or three leftmost Democrats in the House. So uh, if, if if we're talking about some kind of modus vivendi being reached before the convention or at the convention, I think that was a step in the right direction uh, because there's two ways these demonstrations can go. They can be, as it were, kind of a a celebration of Bernie's achievement and the reminder to the party that the party, you know, and its and its penumbra or whatever now has there's a big left, and that the Democrats themselves have moved well to the left in the course of the year, or they can be uh, somewhat antagonistic if uh, they see that Hillary is not really moving in. in the direction of, uh, of, of the left more than she has at this point. So it's, it's a little hard to say what exactly these demonstrations are going to be at this juncture.
2: Let's look at exactly who Bernie's appointments to the platform committee were. I know that he appointed Keith Ellison, congressman from Minneapolis, my hometown. Who else was on that list?
0: Well, he picked Cornell West, who uh, is, has never been known to be part of the a drafting process uh, for for uh, anything that I know of. Uh, uh, Cornell West. He's picked the uh, environmental activist Bill McKibben. Uh, he picked uh, uh, Native American activist deborah Parker, and he uh, picked Jim Zogby, who is actually quite a veteran of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, also, always listed as uh, someone who is a champion of, uh, of Palestinian rights.
2: Let me just point out yeah. Keith Ellison, the first Muslim elected to Congress, Bill McKibben, been a guest on our show more than once. Well, let's take a step uh, back and take a look at what the Bernie campaign has achieved so far. He's gotten almost 10 million votes uh, in the primaries. How does that compare to other socialist candidates in American history?
0: Well, uh, it certainly validates the strategy of running in the Democratic Party rather than outside, because if you're looking at candidates who uh, ran on the socialist ticket, the high point is uh, Bernie's hero, uh, Eugene V. Debs, in 1912, who got uh, 6% of the vote, which is about a million votes uh, in, uh, in those days. And then uh, he, he did rather well while he was imprisoned for having opposed World War I in 1920. And Norman Thomas, running in 1932, got uh, a little under 900,000 votes. And that, that, that's sort of the high point. Of uh, socialist vote getting, uh, so maybe, Bernie maybe is maybe we uh, should, doing much better than that.
2: Maybe we should also count uh, Henry Wallace, the Progressive Party, in forty-eight. Got what about two million votes?
0: Yeah, and about uh, I think it was about a little over two and a half percent of the vote. I think it was less than two million, uh, but a little over two and a half percent of the vote in the uh, election in which uh, Harry Truman was uh, elected over Republican uh, Thomas Dewey. Uh, so there's no question that Bernie has outperformed uh, all of his uh, socialist or whatever we want to call Henry Wallace uh, forebears.
2: And yet we find, to, to many of us, a shocking degree of aggression and hostility uh, on the part of the, the so-called Bernie bros on the Internet, on Twitter, and on the web, uh, most of it aimed at Hillary and her supporters, something that's uh, that's very uh, destructive and makes a lot of us unhappy.
0: Yeah, uh, agreed. And I don't think that's helping uh, Bernie's campaign at all. I know uh, a number of Bernie supporters who have really been put off by this and might vote in California for Hillary in reaction uh, to that. Although, counteracting that, there's been a huge surge of voter registrations in California this spring, which I think is predominantly Bernie folks. You know, there's kind of a subset of mainly young men texting and twittering and tweeting that uh, across any political tendency has sort of evolved as a subculture in and of itself. And and that subculture, which has uh, developed around Bernie's own campaign, has some of the weaknesses of this subculture generally, you know, a a tendency towards snark, uh, viciousness, absolutism, uh, you name it. Uh, That is, I I am sure, a a small percentage of Bernie supporters, among whom I number myself, but it, it, it doesn't help. It certainly doesn't help Bernie
2: on the question of uh, whether bernie supporters will vote for hillary in the fall bernie has been perfectly clear about trump and his own role in this to quote bernie sanders a donald trump presidency would be a disaster for this country i will do everything i can to prevent that from happening close quote that's pretty Decisive. On the other hand, he says whether his supporters will vote for Hillary is, quote, totally dependent upon her. She is going to have to excite people, convince people that she is, in fact, prepared to go outside of establishment politics and establishment economics, close quote. Do you think he's right
0: about that? Uh, The only word I'd quibble with in that whole statement is entirely, as in entirely up to her. I think Bernie has a role to play too, but I think there are things that Hillary can do in terms of her vice presidential pick, in terms of uh, the platform, and in terms of the future of Democratic Party rules, where I, I think she can move uh, in, in you know, in a Bernie esque direction. And I'm also rather keen on the idea that there are some progressive economic proposals out there that neither of the two candidates owns. For instance. Uh, the things that uh, Elizabeth Warren said in a speech a couple days ago at the New America Foundation where uh, she was talking about uh, giving all workers, whether direct employees or temps or gig workers or whatever, you know, uh, creating kind of universal worker rights and worker benefits, portable benefits that really make sense in uh, our, our brave new economy. Uh, would, would be really good for the platform committee or the Democrats to uh, embrace right now. It's, it's a clear move left uh, that wouldn't be seen as a concession by either candidate. Both of, you know, both of them could reach out to some of what Warren was, uh, was saying. And, uh, you know, I think, I think there are grounds for conciliation. And, you know, you, you had referenced at the start the uh, Chicago Convention of 1968, Uh, I was at that as an 18-year-old junior, junior staffer for Gene McCarthy, the anti-war candidate. You know, and there was a very bitter fight besides the idiocy of the Chicago police uh, beating up anyone uh, they came across in Grant Park. There was a rather bitter platform fight over the Vietnam War, which was the whole basis of the challenge to the Johnson-Humphrey forces uh, in general. And, uh, you know, that was really, I think, a much wider rift than we're seeing between uh, a lot of the Hillary forces and a lot of the Bernie forces. There's no reason uh, why that level, a 68 level of discontent, need exist, I think, at, uh, at, at the forthcoming uh, Democratic Convention, which is not to say it won't, but uh, it is to say that uh, I think uh, smart heads on, uh, on both sides can find ways to okay. avoid that.
2: So I think it's pretty clear that Hillary voters, or at least many Hillary voters lean towards Bernie's positions. But what about the party establishment? They're not Bernie people.
0: Well, I mean some are uh, uh, some are. I mean, I think there's there's a rift between her uh, rank and file supporters and some of the institutional support that uh that she may be getting uh from wall street and uh and elsewhere uh you know i mean bernie has shown that you can raise a lot of money without getting a nickel from wall street uh and uh but there's no question that it's uh it's 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 a it's a problem for her and, and i and i think it hurts her politically as evidenced by that uh polling result that showed uh trump as being far more credible than she with most voters on on the on the question of handling wall street which is just a you know, a a real indictment of the effect of her being, you know, a recipient of of donations over the years uh, from Wall Street. It's a real problem, which is why she uh, really does need, I think, to do something like uh, uh, endorse a financial uh, transaction tax. Politically and, you know, also on the merits, she really needs to uh, uh, create uh, some real distance between her and some of her uh, financial and institutional supporters.
2: Of course, Bernie is out here in California this week and next week campaigning, and the L.A. Times reported uh, recently that he has stopped attacking Hillary in his stump speech over the last few days. He was in Santa Monica uh, this week. We were at the Santa Monica rally and saw the same thing. He, The only attack on Hillary uh, in his stump speech uh, referred to that day's news that she had refused the invitation to debate him uh, in Cal- before the California primary. He called that disappointing but not surprising, but he didn't uh, talk about her fees uh, from Goldman Sachs. He didn't talk about the fact that she doesn't support $15 an hour minimum wage. He didn't talk about her past support for trade agreements. He just laid out his own positions, contrasted them to the Republicans. So it seems like Bernie himself is pointing the direction that you are uh, suggesting.
0: Yeah, I think so, and I think uh, I, I, I think he probably also feels that the uh, appointments to the platform drafting committee are sort of a signal from uh, the other side that uh, maybe what he's now saying and, and backing off some of the Hillary attacks that, that this has been acknowledged and reciprocated. There was a, a significant uh, a piece written by Nate Silver recently of the 538 website talking about uh, a high percentage of the independents who, uh, you know, register as independents and are up for grabs in, in polling between Trump and uh, Clinton are actually uh, Bernie backers, not you know, not necessarily moderate uh, centrist center rightist to, to Hillary's right, and so there's a, there's a strategic logic for November, I think, in her bolstering you know those, those kinds of positions. I would also add that the, in today's Wall Street Journal, they, they broke out some, some questions on uh, on uh, comparisons in their poll between Trump and uh, and and Hillary, and. On the question of who would deal with Wall Street better, Trump outdistanced her by twenty one percent, meaning that you know if if she could bring herself to endorse some of the uh, Bernie proposals, like for a financial transaction tax or other things that would be seen as raining in Wall Street, that would uh, you know she she's really got nowhere to go but up on that and uh, and she needs to.
2: Harold Meyerson, you can read his piece, How the Bros Are Undermining Bernie, at the American Prospect website, prospect.org. Thank you, Harold.
0: Thank you, John.
2: The pollsters tell us Hillary is still the most likely candidate to be elected president in November, and one of the things she has emphasized during the campaign is her record as Secretary of State helping poor women around the world. For comment, we turn to Tom Frank. Of course, he wrote the classic book, What's the Matter with Kansas?, and also Pity the Billionaire and The Wrecking Crew. He's a former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's, and now he writes about politics for Salon. And he has a new book out. It's called Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. I asked Tom Frank about Hillary's work as Secretary of State, especially her program for poor women around the world. It was called The Hillary Doctrine.
1: She had two, uh, two big initiatives as Secretary of State that, that intrigued me. And I, By the way, John, I was surprised when I was writing this book that there were, there were very few uh, people that actually examined what she did as Secretary of State, apart from the wars, yeah. you know, apart, apart from the wars that she was always urging us to get into. Uh, people haven't really looked at what, what, she, what she brought to the State Department. But She had two things. One was what she called Internet freedom, and the other is they call the Hillary Doctrine, and you know, internet freedom is—I mean, you, you know what it is, right? It's that everybody on the planet has a human right to Google things. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you have a right to be tracked by Google, right? <laughs> and the, the but the and so therefore we need to get all, you know a computer in the hands of every man, woman, and child in the world. But the, the Hillary Doctrine is the one that really intrigues me, and this is. Um, it just went by relatively without notice from the American pundit corps. But Hillary Clinton declared that the United States was henceforth to be the world's protector of women and girls. Okay, and you know that sounds like a, a kind of a, a strange a uh, shift you know but it, in fact it's sort of of a piece with uh the the bush administration's war on radical islam in fact the bush administration was sort of evolving towards making this kind of feminism to rationalizing its various wars in the name of feminism and hillary sort of picked up where that uh where that left off but uh yeah she uh, you know she would give these uh these very prominent speeches you know ted talks and that kind of thing about how we needed to uh defend women and girls worldwide
2: Let me quote from one of those from your book. The subjugation of women is a threat to the common security of our world and to the national security of our country, close quote. Wow. What what do we usually do when our national security is threatened?
1: launch the missiles, launch the missiles, you know, slap the trade embargoes off. You know, you, you put the quarantine around Cuba, you know. It's a, it sounds like a really big deal. When, and when I watched that speech, and by the way, this was in a TED Talk. Uh, well I was watching that speech it's like am I hearing world war 3 declared <laughs> from a, from a TED talk? <laughs> I mean that wouldn't that be just the 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 uh, I mean that would be just the consummation of this kind of, the kind of liberalism that I'm writing about in this book. Um, but uh no that's not what she meant at all of course. She just was uh she was just talking big. Uh, what what she actually meant was uh, uh is that and she didn't even mean that we would be supportive of all women. She mainly meant that we would be supportive of, of, of women entrepreneurs around the world. And,
2: and, and how? How are we supposed to help women become entrepreneurs? Well, this is kind of an
1: interesting thing. She's, of course, extremely vague about, about all of this. And it's, it's never really nailed down. You, I mean, you say nice things about them. But another thing that you do is you encourage what's called micro-lending. And this is again this is not a well-known uh idea here in America. It's not a well-known phenomenon, but it's uh, uh Hillary has uh talked about it. Basically, her entire adult life. If you go back to her days as first lady in the in the Bill Clinton administration, um she used to go around the world uh, promoting micro lending. And what it is, the idea is that you give uh uh small entrepreneurs and specifically women you give them tiny little loans you know like a hundred dollars or something like that so they can start their own business and um it's uh it's 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 often touted as the solution to poverty and in the 1990s when you know the world bank and the imf were, were basically going around the world uh uh Uh, What would you structurally adjusting? I guess structural adjustment was the term structurally adjusting everybody's economy You know these countries would say yeah, but your structural adjustments You know the deregulation and the privatization. This is going to ruin us and the and the World Bank would say ah But we'll solve that problem by giving you micro loans (laughs) Okay, giving it was passing
2: out a hundred dollar a hundred dollar checks to to a few poor women
1: yeah, but but now this is this is not charity, you understand? This is this is a loan. They have to pay it back. So that it's making them into debtors. Now, I'm going to make the a long story very short, but you, you know, your listeners can basically can guess by now. It, in the 90s this was supposed to be the silver bullet for poverty. And, you know, it it, it was a win-win. Uh the lender made money, uh the 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 the, 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 one, the women entrepreneurs became uh millionaires, right? Everybody won, right? No, it was a another colossal failure but weirdly uh that didn't come out until very recently uh the the, the entire sort of global financial community would would talk about this idea of micro lending as though it were uh, this perfect solution for everything uh you know and the 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 big american foundations the ngos all of these people were on board with it but now we know Thanks to a number of, of researchers in the UK, this thing is, a, is you know, is it, 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 just uh, well, it's complete rubbish. It doesn't work at all. It doesn't empower these women. It makes them into debtors, and uh, you know, the businesses that they start, it's always the same kind of thing. It's like you know, I'm going to uh, sell the milk from my goat, or I'm going to raise vegetables in my garden, or I'm going to make uh, you know toys out of scrap metal. This is not how you employ people in an economy. You know, this is, this is like, in terms of job creation, this is, this is nothing. It's, it's, it's completely ineffective. And one of the, one of the, one of the researchers that I was reading compared it to the, uh, uh, communism. Because they're doing this now, by the way, in Bosnia. Bosnia is, uh, you know, where, uh, where America obviously has enormous influence. Bosnia is saturated with microloans. And you have, on the one hand, these sort of micro-lending millionaires, you know, the people who hand out the loans, the sort of local uh, bankers. And then on the other hand, you have all these people indebted to them. And the the country is a, you know, economic, uh, well, it's a disaster zone. And the people there actually look back to the days of communism with fondness, you know. The the five-year plans, the factories, the tractors, you know, that actually worked compared to this
2: in your in your book uh, listen liberal you have the you have a very powerful critique of Hillary's kind of mi- micro loans you talk about the alternative that it Replaces,
1: yeah. Any kind of uh, collective action by the people who live there. Yeah. it's all the, the the whole principle of microlending is that you will um, everybody. We will cure the economy and we will solve poverty and all this stuff through individual effort. So no labor unions, no governments coming in to organize things, uh, nothing like that. It's all you as a small entrepreneur pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Now uh, I want to stop for a second here, John, and remind. The listeners that we're talking about Democrats here. We're yeah. talking about liberals. This is not Republicans. This is a very very liberal idea. This is a, the idea that that all the liberal foundations are into. Uh, they spend uh, millions and millions of dollars on this. There are companies that they bankroll. The companies make money off of the uh, off of the microloans. By the way, the microloans are often usurious. You know, like a hundred percent interest, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, uh, it, this is all over the place, and it is a huge colossal. Failure. It's also just, I mean, you, you know it's going to fail when you, you set up as your solution to poverty something that's not going to cost anybody anything. You know, you're just going to hand out small loans and tell these people that they have to become entrepreneurs. It's basically one step up from, from doing nothing, you know, doing nothing for these people. Uh, and, yeah, it's, it, it, it fails. But that's Hillary's solution to inequality. That's it. Uh, let's, and, let's,
2: let's talk about the global microcredit summit in Washington, D.C., back in 97, which Hillary co-hosted. You have a vivid picture of how the microcredit summit in Washington ended.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is, of course, an occasion where bankers, because obviously microlending is of great interest to banks, uh, banks get together with the sort of representatives of the third world, and they hold hands and sing, um, uh, you know, sing songs together. And uh, there's, they, in fact, in, on this particular occasion, the song they sang was We Shall Overcome. Oh. I know. The and, bankers,
2: uh, the world's uh, bankers,
1: yes, hold hands and sing. There, there was sing. a representative of Citicorp uh, who was there, you know, Citibank. And uh, this is what he said. he said. He said to all the people there in the room, everyone in this room is a banker, because everyone here is banking on self-employment to help alleviate poverty around the world. Yes. And this is, and then it, over the years, by the way, I, so I studied micro-lending, over the years, you can sort of watch as this uh, idea, you know, this, it's a foundation, it's a favorite foundation hobby horse, but as this idea sort of picks up, these different uh, refinements and details, like the loans must go to women, not men. And so women are better entrepreneurs than men. And, but, but women have to have, the, the entrepreneurs have to have mentors. Back in the in the West, in the United States, or in England, or somewhere like that. Uh, no, no, no. Wait. There's one more thing. The, the The entrepreneurs have to have a smartphone to connect them uh, to uh, to their bank, right? <laughs> they have to be on the internet, and so it would collect all of these uh, uh, all of all of these neat little details over the years. But none of it really made any difference. But then uh, the, uh, the sort of culmination of it is, I like go to I went to a Hillary Clinton event just about exactly a year ago, right now. I went to a hillary clinton event in uh, in New york City not a hillary, it was a Clinton foundation event with hillary was was the m c and uh, you know there's lots of talk about this and you and you see the same thing you there as at that micro summit credit in Washington in one thousand nine hundred and ninety seven this, this very um, sort of high idealism, very noble this sort of i call it the, the microclimate of virtue that always surrounds Hillary Clinton is everybody is so good. You know what I mean? They're they're so they're such fine, fine individuals. Um, the co host of it, by the way, this time was Melinda Gates, the you know, the richest woman in the world. Yes. So it's Hillary and Melinda Gates and then this uh all of these uh very, very poor women from the third world, you know. And I was sitting there in the audience watching this and thinking, what is the connection between these two these two groups, you know, the, the, uh, the American women talking about, you know, smashing the glass ceiling, you know, this is Hillary's great, uh, great line, and then these women from these entrepreneurs from the third world who've got, who've got themselves a microloan and have managed to succeed. And uh, uh, it was fascinating, and what's even more fascinating is when you think about what's missing from that picture. You know, that's Hillary's, that's Hillary's worldview. That's how she understands, you know, inequality. But there's something missing from it. And what's missing? I mean, obviously, uh, American working women—you know, uh, her own people that live in this they, they live in this country—and who had the the floor basically pulled out from under them uh, with welfare reform in 1996.
2: Tom Frank, his new book is "Listen, Liberal." Whatever happened to the party of the people? Tom, thanks for talking with us today.
1: You got it, John.
2: A lot of people see independent voters as the key to this election. When pollsters ask voters whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or Independents, the largest group says they're Independents, 39 percent. Democrats are 32 percent. Republicans are a tiny, pathetic 23 percent. Trump says he's won the Independents, and that's going to make him president. Bernie, of course, says he has won the Independents. For comment and analysis, we turn to Joshua Holland. He writes for The Nation. He's a fellow at The Nation Institute, and he's the host of Politics and Reality Radio. Joshua Holland, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, John. Well, the big question is, who are the independents, and how independent are they really?
3: Well, we have to start with the the obvious reality that they are a heterodox bunch, but the thing that a lot of political commentators get wrong is this assumption that they're thoughtful independents, that they're up for grabs by either party, and that the parties have to win over independents in order to win elections. What we see is that the vast majority of independents, all but maybe 5% of the electorate, um, are not swing voters. They are reliable voters for one party or another. They, um, tend to be slightly less engaged in politics. They're slightly less likely to vote at all, but they're not, you know, people who are in the middle who can vote for a Republican one year, vote for a Democrat in the following election. There is a share of those people. Again, they're about 5%. So, When you
2: include leaners among those independents with the rest of the electorate, what does the party breakdown look like?
3: Well, using that same data from um, Pew, which is a year old, a year ago, they found that the Democrats and Democratic leaners made up 48% of the electorate. Republicans and Republican leaners made up 39% of the electorate. And then in that study, you had 12 or 13% who refused to identify one way or the other. So. Let's talk about
2: Trump. He claims to have brought millions and millions of new people into the Republican Party from the ranks of independents, and the people Trump beat in the primaries agree with that. They've been saying Trump won because independents flipped the scales in what otherwise would have been a close contest among Republicans. What do you think about that?
3: Well, the, uh, I think it was the Washington Post did an analysis of, of exit poll data, and what they found was that the, new, the so-called new voters that Donald Trump says that he is bringing into the Republican Party, many of them, most of them, have not voted in primaries in the past. So they're not reliable primary voters, but they are, in fact, not new to the Republican Party, nor are they new to voting for Republicans in the general election. It's one of these, like, interesting trivia things. The fact that you're getting people to turn out for the primary certainly may help you in the primary, but it's not in any way indicative of how you're going to fare in the general election, given that there are already people who are going to vote for the Republican. Turning to Bernie, Bernie has made a strong case that it's the
2: open Democratic primaries where he's done the best because he can recruit the independents. California primary uh, coming up shortly. Independents are allowed to vote in yes. the Democratic primary. What do you think of
3: Bernie's argument? Two things. First of all, Sanders has won eight out of the nineteen open primaries, so it's it's not like he's he's a, a sure thing or a slam dunk in open primaries. He's lost more of them than he's won. But the 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 important thing to understand here is that. Bernie has dominated among independents and this is largely a result of the demographics. So if you look at who is most likely to identify as an independent, by about 20 points, it's millennials. It's young people. White people are more likely to identify as an independent than black people. Uh, Men are more likely to identify as an independent than women. So, you know, you look at the... At the two candidates' coalitions, you know, there has been a, an age gap, there has been a gender gap, and there has been a, a white-black gap, or an, a gap in ethnicity or race. So, you know, I, I think that there's no denying that Sanders has done extremely well with independence, but again, this is just another way of looking at the coalitions that appear to skew towards these two candidates. There's nothing unique about this group as far as their ideology or or, or how they think. And one of the interesting things I would add to this is this. If you look at ideology, Sanders' Democratic supporters are far more liberal than Hillary Clinton's Democratic supporters. But if you look at Sanders' independent supporters and Hillary Clinton's independent supporters, there's virtually no ideological space between them. Wow. Yeah, I mean, fun with – with trivia, but I mean that's the, the whole thing is that this is interesting demographic trivia <clears throat> rather than some profound um, category of voters that we have to think about as as being unique in 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 our political system. They're not unique. They tend to be very. They're, they're political scientists call them closet partisans, right? They don't want to say I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. And a key part of that is that as our politics have become increasingly nasty, increasingly personal, uh, as we've grown further apart and more polarized, a lot of them are just turned off by identifying with one party or another. So they'll go out and they'll vote every time for a Republican or they'll go out and vote every time for a Democrat, but they don't want to call themselves Democrats. They don't want to call themselves Republicans because they think that the partisan combat is ugly, So if
2: independents are not really independent, if most of them are committed partisans who have stable patterns of voting for the same party over the years, and really the only ones who matter are the so-called independents in the, what, six or eight swing states, what does that mean for this election? What does it mean for Trump? What does it mean for the Democrats?
3: in this election and in other recent elections what we've seen is that the two parties have excelled and increasingly excelled at identifying their voters and turning them out and when i say their voters i mean their partisan their their registered partisans and also the independents who lean towards their party so you know it's become such a sophisticated game to turn out your voters that the parties are putting less emphasis on persuading that very small and decreasing group that are up for grabs in the middle the the five percent or so who are what what political science is called floating voters they're genuine swing voters so if you're going to invest resources in your in in your campaign and trying to win it's more cost effective to Get out your own people who might be less motivated to go to the polls, uh, might be busy, might have other things in their lives, than it is to try to actually win over uh, those folks who are up for grabs. We are told that this
2: election is different because the independents who support Bernie— are more likely to vote for the Republican candidate this year than has been the case in past contested Democratic primaries. That there is a, a an overlap between uh, support for Bernie and potential support for Trump of a kind we haven't seen before. There's some poll evidence. One poll shows only 66 percent of Sanders backers said they would. Uh, support uh, Hillary in November. Uh, Another poll found 20% of Sanders supporters said they would vote for Trump in November rather than Clinton. You wrote a a piece for the nation.com, I think two months ago, where the headline was relax. Bernie's supporters will back Hillary if she's the nominee. Are you still relaxed about the Bernie supporters vote in November?
3: <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. Well, I'm I'm um I'm always nervous about about these elections. And I I'm I'm not but I'm not panicking and I am very confident that the process of party unification that we've seen in the past is going to is going to play out as as it always does, especially because we're talking about Donald Trump, he's such a polarizing force. I believe that Sanders is going to extract some additional concessions. We've already seen that starting with um, with Sanders having picks on the platform committee this week. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that Sanders is going to get some more stuff out of her and then he is going to endorse her and then he's going to campaign for her. And in that piece, I noted that the number of, of Sanders supporters who say that they won't vote for Clinton is significantly less than Clinton supporters who said that they would not vote for Obama in 2008. Well, what Bernie has said uh, this time around,
2: quoting him, I will do everything that I can to prevent Trump from being elected. That would be a disaster for this country. But he went on to say, whether his supporters will vote for Hillary quote is totally dependent upon her close quote if she doesn't adopt the kind of positions that he has uh, expressed to mobilize his supporters uh, Bernie Sanders
3: says uh, his supporters many of his supporters won't vote for her do you think do you think that's true we're in a hotly contested primary season so Sanders supporters uh, I count myself among them, I am a Sanders supporter, are looking at Clinton on one side and Sanders on the other, and they like what they see on the Sanders side, and they don't really like what they see on the Clinton side. When we get to the general election, you're just going to have a, a starkly different set of, of choices before you. You're going to have Hillary on one side and Donald Trump on the other. And I'm, I'm really not worried about party unification in light of that, those contrasts being apparent during a general election.
2: Last question. What do you think about the chances for party unification on the Republican side? We've seen unprecedented opposition from the leaders of the party, from the past candidates, from the previous Republican presidents to Trump. Do you think there'll be party unification of the traditional
3: kind for behind Trump? To some degree, you're already seeing it, and that's, that's clear in the polls. Uh, Trump's favorability is increasing. Those favorability numbers are not increasing among Democrats, and they're not I- increasing among Dem-leaning independents. They're increasing among Republicans. I believe that Trump is, as, as a non-main, non-mainstream candidate, will be a bit of an exception in the sense that even a small share of Republican women are going to be turned off in a visceral sense to his misogyny. And I think that partisan partisanship and negative partisanship especially is a really powerful force, but there's there's a share of, of, of Republican women out there that are just not going to be able to countenance it. And it doesn't have to be a large share to create a very um, disparate impact in the electoral college, right? If, you're, if 5% of Republican women stay home in Ohio and Florida and Virginia. It's going to be a, uh, a very lopsided uh, result.
2: Joshua Holland, he's got the facts. Read him at thenation.com. Listen to him on Politics and Reality Radio on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Joshua, thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.